In September, documents leaked to the media by a former Facebook employee revealed that the company's internal research had found that its apps could be harmful for teens, particularly for teenage girls' mental health. The headlines about toxic social media seem to confirm parents' worst fears about the effects of all the time that kids are spending online. Recent surveys have found that 95% of U.S. teens have a smartphone or access to one, and more than 80% have at least one social media account on Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, Facebook, or other sites. But psychologist research has suggested that there are nuanced answers to the questions surrounding how all this social media use is affecting teens' health and well-being. For instance, is there such a thing as healthy social media use for teens? And if so, what does that look like? Does social media cause depression and anxiety? Or conversely, can it be a source of social and emotional support for kids? Do teens understand how social media algorithms work and why they see the content that they do online. Why does that matter? And what can parents, educators, and others do to maximize the benefits and minimize the potential harms of social media? Welcome to Speaking of Psychology, the flagship podcast of the American Psychological Association that examines the links between psychological science and everyday life. I'm Kim Mills. Our guest today is Dr. Linda Charmarmaran, a senior research scientist and director of the Youth Media and Wellbeing Research Lab at the Wellesley Centers for Women. She studies young people's social media use and is conducting a three-year National Institutes of Health funded study to follow middle school students and their parents during this critical developmental period. She's looking at how social technologies, including smartphones, social media, YouTube, and gaming affect kids' health and well-being in the longer term. She's published dozens of journal articles and seven book chapters and has been widely quoted in the media, offering advice to parents, educators, policymakers, and others. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with the Facebook documents leak since that's been such a big news story. The headline was that Facebook's own research found that its platforms, particularly Instagram, could be harmful to teens' mental health. Facebook's research found associations with anxiety, depression, body image issues, and even suicidal thoughts. Were you surprised by these findings, and do they square with what you and other researchers have found? I'm so glad you mentioned that study because it has definitely been going around in my circles. And and let me just say the, the first answer to your question is, no, I'm not surprised because there's been hundreds of studies about social media platforms in general um, that have differential sort of um, impacts on young people, depending on how they use it. And so um, I'm not surprised that there's some kind of data um, coming from their internal sources that um, that shows some of the harm that, that, that can be found. Other studies have found similar findings. You know, in fact, one of our, our body image related papers about teenage girls and boys, you know, have found similar things about, you know, about 20, 30% of them have some kind of social media related body dissatisfaction um, resulting in it. And that there are celebrities um, that they friend that can exacerbate some of those, those issues. Um, and so the, the point I wanted to make about that is, is that this research is out there peer-reviewed in academic journals, and it isn't until there's a leak in the press, you know, that gets wind of this, that it's suddenly national news, it's on people's news feeds all the time, um, even though this is not peer-reviewed 
data and it's not nationally representative. It's, um, it's actually based on pretty small samples. So the national attention it's getting, um, I think it's some, somehow misdirecting what should be really the point of it is that we need to increase our um, attention on social media literacy programming in the schools and parental guidance and monitoring and empowering youth to use it in more positive ways um, without relying on an industry or a product to keep them safe. So how are teens using social media these days and, and what sites are they on? I mean, we all hear that Facebook is for old people now. So <laughs> where do young people congregate online and how do social technologies fit into their everyday lives? Yes, yes. We, well, I am specializing in middle school youth, so 11 to 15 year olds. And the ones that are um, in my study of um, over about 1,500 youth that I'm following over time, in their top 10 sites... Facebook doesn't even crack top 10. Instagram is number two. So YouTube is number one, and then Instagram, and then TikTok, and then Snapchat. So, so it's, they're all very close together, though. You know, about 70% of them are on, you know, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok. And, uh, and they definitely are interacting in ways that are being more and more common um, nowadays to, to use it as not just connection, but, but for also raising awareness of social issues that they care about. So th there's, there's ways that youth are using it that might not be what other generations might imagine them using it for. You know, there's a lot of narrative um, out there that it's, it's a lot of online drama, which there is. There are online drama you know, instances, of course, and, um, and there's a lot of cyberbullying. There, there's a lot of media headlines about all the negative things that can go wrong, the worst case scenarios. But the Pew Research Center um, in a national representative sample found that only about 20 something percent, you know, have really negative kind of experiences on social media, but mostly almost 80% of people have primarily positive and, and connecting experiences and socially supportive experiences. And so what, what I'm hoping for, um, knowing about this data and knowing what kids are actually doing on these, these sites is that we support the positive, you know, interactions and also help prevent some of the negative, but knowing that all of it is happening, not just the negative. But for that 20%, it's, it's pretty important. I mean, they, they could be having some issues, uh, for example, with teenage girls around body image. Are you, are you seeing big gender differences in the way that young people use social media and the effects that it, that it can have? Yes, definitely some gender differences. You can probably see it in your own households out there where the boys are more gravitating towards games and, and the sites like Discord and Twitch and YouTube and watching videos of other gamers, you know, um, and girls are a lot more about the image-based uh, platforms, you know, like Instagram and Snapchat and where you can use filters and kind of create this other, you know, vision of themselves. Um, girls are more likely to use Pinterest, you know, than boys. Um, so there's definitely gender differences um, th that are seen on offline, you know, instances as well, where the boys just gravitate towards certain activities more than girls. And, and in terms of the negative effects, are there more negative effects for girls or boys, or is it kind of evenly distributed? Yes, it really depends on what construct you're, you're interested in looking at. Like, for instance, for body image, you know, girls report are, are socially groomed to 
to be able to report that they experience that more. I'd say it, it is a thing happening in boys, but they're not socially groomed to admit it as much, I, I would venture to guess. But it does happen in boys. And, um, and for girls, especially since there's such a huge societal preoccupation about girls' bodies and needing to comment about girls' bodies and, and to adhere to perfect um, beauty ideals that girls have much more than boys in, in a lot of cases. And so there's a lot more just being self-conscious about those things, the images you put up and how it relates to your social status online and offline. Um, so girls um, have, been, have been shown to, to maybe have a little bit more of a tendency to, to be socially comparing themselves to other people and perhaps to other girls. So not just their bodies, but just in general. Um, and when, you're, and when, you, when you have that sort of uh, vulnerability, it often affects your self-esteem and how you feel about yourself. And so it's all connected in a way. Um, so it could be that they're already bringing that vulnerability to how they use platforms. And that's why they go down a road that might be um, not as uh, as happy road than, than the boys that might not be caring about the social comparisons and body comparisons. So a moment ago, you mentioned uh, cyberbullying, and I know that's gotten a lot of media coverage over the years. Um, how common is it? Is, has it changed? Is it as frequent a concern among the, the kids you're dealing with? Yeah, no, that's a very interesting question because um, in one of our latest papers, we're looking at subpopulations, you know, specific groups of adolescents in which we're trying to figure out, you know, are they more are they more prone to being victimized by cyberbullying? You know, for instance, we we had this paper about LGBTQ youth, and and how definitely the the dominant narrative in the past has been that LGBTQ youth are harassed in, in a significantly greater frequency than their straight peers, and in our in our latest research, we, we try to look into um, this community-based sample and which is representative of the communities and not just people who identify as LGBTQ youth. We compare them with um, straight youth and how they're experiencing cyberbullying. And they weren't significantly different um, in how they experience cyberbullying, the frequency. Um, it could just be that I'm also in a very liberal part of the country. I live in, um, in the Northeast where where it's, it's very progressive. Uh, however, it, it is really uh, promising to hear that that is it might not be as much of the dominant narrative. Now, the narrative we found instead of cyberbullying, which is what everybody wants to talk about, is more about social isolation, that there's still a lot of social isolation with LGBT youth and not knowing who to talk to about their different identities and about um, the, the support that they might need that maybe only online sources can get because of their geographic restrictions, you know. Um, and so, so the narrative might want to be a little more broad than just peer-on-peer -peer harassment. It could be that there's there's other things going on in different vulnerable youth's lives in which social media could play a role in. So it sounds like there might be something positive then, at least for the LGBTQ kids in, in social media that maybe gives them an opportunity to see examples of how their lives might turn out or connect with, with other LGBTQ kids. Is that that's what you're saying? Yes, and, and some sites are a lot more amenable to and more open and receptive and even celebratory. You know, for instance, Tumblr has been a, a site uh, that the LGBTQ uh, community has cited as, you know, even back 10 years ago, Tumblr was something that um, was very open and receptive. Although there are some algorithms that recently called into play some of the um, censoring that, that was happening based on certain keywords. But overall, um, you know, even though Tumblr has lost 
sort of popularity in the general public sphere. In our recent surveys, uh, even just in fall 2020, that youth, LGBT youth in this age range of 11 to 15 are still using Tumblr and still finding it to be a safe space for them to explore their identities and um, and it's just it's just wonderful to know that those things don't come and go as easily as people think of as social media sites being fads. Are some of these sites inherently riskier for teens than others? I mean, like TikTok, where you see kids all the time who are out making videos of themselves. Are, are they doing things that, that might be risky? I mean, kids will always do things that are risky and crazy. But are there some sites that are more um, perilous for, for kids of this age? I would say it's not the site per se, but certain sites have features in which if users know about those features and how to manipulate those features for um, sort of, sort of uh, you know, not innocent purposes, then, then that's when you sort of get into the risky categories. You know, the sites that the parents are less familiar with, you know, like for instance, TikTok, you know, probably parents are less familiar with that than Facebook. And so they don't know all the ways that, um, that they can kind of hide their identities or have create other accounts in which the parents don't monitor or they don't know the existence of, so they can kind of, you know, do th- wacky things that they probably wouldn't want their parents to know about, you know, and so it's, it's not exactly about the site per se. It's about how the users find ways to not be, you know, under surveillance um, uh, of the adults that might judge that, you know, their grandma, they don't want their grandma to see that TikTok, but it's okay, you know, their inside um, friends will, will have a laugh over that particular video, but the grandma will, will need to see this other side of them. Uh, <laughs> so a lot of parents want to know, at what age is it okay for kids to get a smartphone or a social media account? What, what would you tell them? How how young is too young for social media? That's a great question and a very, very common concern, I have to say. Um, the average age at getting a smartphone in the U.S. is, I think, 10.3, um, the last I, I saw. And that's pretty young. I mean, that's like fourth grade. I have a fourth grader, and uh, I don't think that she's quite ready for it. But but there's a lot of reasons why people get a smartphone. You know, sometimes it's very um, instrumental to just, you know, where are they at? How do I get you a ride? You know, how do I pick you up? You know, very basic kind of ways to communicate with your, with your family when you're not right now to each other all the time. I would say that it really depends on the family and the kid and the use of the phone. Because in our research, uh, we found that most of the time, when you look at the general trajectory of how people start getting initiated into their first social media sites, it's because they first got that phone. So what do you think is going to happen next when you get the phone? They're not going to just be on, you know, Google, you know, searching Google and searching, um, being on YouTube. They're going to find out that their friends are all on these other sites and they're going to start downloading things. Um, and so usually about a year later, they're on at least one or two. And then two years later, they're on three, four, five different sites, you know, because that's just the natural progression of the peer kind of influence. And, you know, if they're if their their school site has a, a huge you know peer pressure to have everybody on TikTok, then it's very likely that your your kid is going to be pressured into it. Um, so it depends on the peer group. Um, we have some research that we're we're doing on actually the age of initiation and if it's if it makes a difference in the long run. And we are finding that you know the younger that they are initiating, let's say, um, in terms of social media, and this is not smartphone, this is social media, and and specifically Instagram and Snapchat. We wanted to look at these specifically because there's so many different ones out there. We want it to be very, very clear. Usually, the younger that they are, the more likely they are to 
have more online harassment happen because they've been on it longer. They have more followers. You know, they have more chances for um, mean things happening online, more online drama. There's a lot more um, behaviors in which they're doing things that are secretive that the parents don't know about. Like maybe they're adding friends that the parents wouldn't approve of or they're adding sites that their parents wouldn't approve of. Um, they are more likely to uh, to get a little bit fixated on the phone more the, the younger that they are because it's a part of their everyday um, routine in a way. And although um, one positive thing about starting early on social media that we found in our in our studies is that they're more likely to um, know about the positive behaviors and socially supportive behaviors that are a part of being a part of a community, a socially supportive community. So, uh, so, but but if you start much much later, a lot of times there's a lot hesita- hesitancy to jump into a community that you weren't a part of for a long time. And if you're like 14, there's so much that has happened on your peer, you know, social media sites and communities that you almost feel left out. You almost don't even know how to how to jump in there. You didn't kind of grow some of those those behaviors that will help you find the social support that you might need. Yeah. So there's a lot of pressure then to keep up. Absolutely. So there's been a growing public awareness in recent years of how social media algorithms control what we all see online and that these contribute to the political polarization and other societal problems that we're living with right now. In, in your research, have you found our kids and, and teens, maybe some of the older teens, aware of these algorithms? Do they understand how they work and why they're seeing the stuff that they're seeing? I was actually surprised in some of the interview studies that I've done, how much middle schoolers both know and don't know. So they know that there are algorithms out there. They've heard that word. They know that that there's 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 content that fed that's fed to them based on what they have already inputted. They they kind of know that basic thing. And the thing that I think is really interesting is that most of the time they don't think there's anything wrong with that. They don't think there's anything creepy or sinister or they think, wow, they know about me. How I'm famous or or I must be important that they want to know more about my habits. So I don't have any desire to shield what what these companies want to know about me. So that's why there are protections against, you know, people from signing up from social media too young because, you know, you're supposed to be 13 uh, due to, you know, federal um, requirements of COPA. And, you know, advertisers aren't supposed to find out information about people younger than 13. Um, and for, for a good reason, because of these these kind of, kind of understandings and comments from middle schoolers that they're happy to give up their information. They're happy to keep their GPS on and show everybody where they're at and check in at all these locations because it makes them feel famous. It makes them feel, you know, seen. What do you tell parents then? I mean, some who might be listening to this discussion, you know, once we've posted it about the best ways to encourage healthy social media use in, in kids. I mean, are there are there warning signs of potentially unhealthy social media use that parents should be looking out for? Yes, yes. There's there's the normative levels of addiction, <laughs> and then you know when you first start on on a site or a game, you want to be on it all the time. So that's kind of like the normative level. But if there's if it goes into other areas of your life that you find they're missing meals, they are not as interested in hanging out with their friends, you know, offline anymore. They are um, losing sleep. They're not doing well in school because they are so hooked on whatever it is that screen is is calling to them. That's when you might need to maybe ask your pediatrician, ask for a school counselor to check in, you know, ask if the parent, uh, if, the, if the teacher has any ideas in their class about how, how this might be affecting their, their schoolwork. Um, 
and and there's just a lot of ways in which parents could could kind of know the signs because you you will be the ones to know the signs before other people outside the family you know and so if you're waiting for somebody else to say your kid has a problem you know uh, that that it's really going to be about your your in um you know n- nuclear family um unit that will 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 really be on um on, on the same page, you know, you, you're actually seeing them day to day, how they've changed over time. And, and you can kind of keep track of that. Um, I think a lot of conversations about social media and right from the time that you give them the first iPad, the first time that you give them their first phone or let you them use your phone, every time that they, they want to start up a new social media site, that's a great time to have another conversation. It's not just one talk, you know? It's it's multiple talks over many periods of time at each different age stages. You know, when you're about to start middle school for the first time, when you're about to start high school for the first time, what are the new rules that you might want to have in, in place? Because the rules that were good for a sixth grade are not going to be the, the same kind of rules you might have for a 10th grade. You know, when there's a lot more autonomy and a lot of things that are happening that the parents really have no idea about. But if you've instilled within the values that you want them to to continue on in the in the cyberspace world, and you feel comfortable that they've they've been able to handle themselves, you know, in healthy ways, and not get too too over concerned about the drama that's happening, and and know about the social media literacy behind it, um, fake news, and all that kind of stuff, then you can feel that you've done um, your part in that journey of, you know, those discussions over 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 a long period of time. So I'm wondering if there are ways to make these social media platforms safer for young people, particularly the middle schoolers that you're studying. I'm just wondering, how do we square the desire of the companies that make and provide these platforms to be successful with protecting young people from the potential harms? Well, one thing that probably should be done with much more rigor is to really monitor who are these people that are on your sites and how old are they really? Because, you know, technically there's only, you have to be 13, but it's so easy to bypass those age requirements and put in a a fake birth date. And I think companies would, it, it would be in the best interest of their users if, if they could monitor that more and be be really clear about uh, if if this is if this is a parent approved you know signing up and and to have real you know accountability in that um, because a lot of times there's these long user agreements that people you know barely scan maybe when they sign up for the next app the next site and um, so I think if there were user friendly language agreements, you know, user agreements that were for youth, you know, so they can understand what are the privacy, you know, considerations, what are they going to use with their their data in the language that they could understand, you know, I think that would be one step to make sure that they that they are protected in in the kind of privacy and prevention of harassment sorts of concerns that parents have. Do you think these companies are really motivated to do this, though? I mean, is there a way to get them to do it without having to establish some sort of, a, I don't know, watchdog agency, some sort of federal regulators that are going to crack down? Yeah, I mean, they are a business and they have a, uh, you know, a capitalist model, p- perhaps, you know. And and so I think, I think there needs to be probably some kind of... Uh, external regulation system, whether it's the government or some other board of overseers that understand uh, the implications of this, you know, maybe people who are, you know, computer science programmer, ethical decision makers, uh, 
psychologists, you know, um, people, um, therapists and um, educators and, and parents, a nice uh, sort of board of overseers to, to understand this process because they don't have financial conflicts of interest like, like businesses and advertisers who may only care about the headcount. They only care about the number of clicks. They only care about how many ads can we put within this YouTube, you know, segment and how many times can we place ads, you know, within this five minute video. Um, so they have a whole other set of concerns and and another thing is that 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 COPA requirement of age 13 is based on a federal regulatory body that isn't necessarily researchers. It's not based on research. And that's why I have this NIH grant. Um, that's part of the reason why we, we wanted to do it with middle schoolers to understand this this vulnerable age of, you know, anywhere between nine, nine to 13, when they're signing up for social media for the first time, you know, what are the implications of 10 versus 12 versus 14? You know, is there a sweet spot of when is, does it really not matter anymore? Um, if you hit this age, then, then you're good to go or if this if there's a critical age in which in which you know maybe you shouldn't go any any younger than this because xyz might happen we it's a longitudinal study so we we still don't have all the answers that we want to um you know tell the the listeners today about and we, we look forward to being able to share that but but that's definitely the kind of research that needs to be happening um at this very critical age group and then what's the practical application of, of your work when it's done? Do you make it available to the social media companies or does it just go to NIH? I mean, how does it get used and translated into something that will make a difference? Yes, yes. That's that's the perennial, um, you know, sort of dilemma of all researchers who get funded and um, dissemination and translation to the different audiences in which it needs to go to, whether it's, you know, policymakers um, marketing executives, to computer programmers, to the general public and families, you know, educators. There's so many different pieces to the messages that we want to convey that it needs to be its own project. It's its own separate project, you know, with a, a big team of people to try to um, advocate for different audiences to be able to find things in ways that they um, that they can reach it. So things like webinars, things like, you know, doing podcasts, uh, doing open access publications whenever possible so that the general public can click on your on your article and not just be behind a firewall where you have to pay if you're part of an institution, you know, um, having a YouTube channel, you know, um, ready um, for the different disseminations of your of your pieces, having like these five minute, you know, sort of video abstracts of your pieces to, to reach more people who don't have the time or the inclination to read academic articles, you know, from front, front to back. Uh, these are all conversations that we need to have. We need to have more convenings and and think tanks of people of many different backgrounds that could that could you know chip away at all the different ways that we can help you know families and youth um, use social media in healthier ways. Well, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Sharmarman. I think what you're doing is really important. I appreciate the the work that that you are doing to to keep our kids safe. Thank you so much, and I can't wait to continue this conversation. You can find previous episodes of Speaking of Psychology at www.speakingofpsychology.org or on Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have comments or ideas for future podcasts, you can email us at speakingofpsychology at apa.org. Speaking of Psychology is produced by Lee Weinerman. Our sound editor is Chris Condian. Thank you for listening. For the American Psychological Association, I'm Kim Mills. <laughs>